Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Bernie Sanders emerged the frontrunner for the Democratic primary after the New Hampshire election yesterday. There is a question what it means for Wall Street. And right now, it seems like the market just doesn't really care. We've got new highs <laughs> in the NASDAQ and the S&P. And this is different from Senator Warren. When she was taking the lead, there seemed to be a more negative effect on markets. Uh, Nir Kaisar has been tracking this, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also founder of Unison Advisors, joining us from our 1991 studio in Washington, D.C. Nir, are you surprised? the market's complacency about the potential shift to a different form of populism should Bernie Sanders win? Hi, Lisa. I am surprised in the sense that the narrative seems to be that if Bernie Sanders wins, the market's going to tank. And so I would think that that sort of um, that sentiment would weave its way into the market. On the other hand, you know, as I wrote in, in my column today, I, I actually think that if Sanders wins, that could give the market a lift. And it's possible that the market is just rejecting the popular narrative, that the market is just not listening to what everyone else is saying. It's, it's interesting. With, you know, a populist in the White House um you know, like a Bernie Sanders, what is the, when you, when you talk to market participants, investors, do they think that's good for growth or not? You know, there seems to be just a, a lot of, from, from the feedback that I get and, and the conversations that I'm having, there just seems to be a ton of bearish response around Sanders in general. Um, bad for the economy, bad for asset prices, bad for, you know, pretty much anything you can imagine um, that has to do with free markets. And I, I'm not necessarily saying that that view is wrong, but what I am saying is that one of the things I think we can be sure about with Sanders is that he's going to spend a lot. And he's proposing to uh, finance some of that with higher taxes. Taxes, but that seems to me is not going to pay for you know college for all and housing and health care for all and the Green New Deal and so he's going to have to run up the the the, uh, the federal deficits the fiscal deficits we've had in recent years and in general that should stimulate the economy not hurt it. It's interesting. I was reading a story on the Bloomberg, and it talks about all the reasons why markets may be dismissing the potential for another version of populism. Uh, and one of them is that Bernie Sanders won't get anything done if he gets elected because you'll have a split Senate, uh, split a Senate in Congress, uh, Senate and House of Representatives, Democrat versus Republican. Other people saying, well, he'll just spend more. Which is it? Do you think that he will actually be effective in passing these proposals? You know, that's such an interesting question because I think, you know, obviously it's very hard to know for sure. But uh, I think the, the baseline case is that the things that people worry about the most with Bernie Sanders, nationalizing, you know, broad swaths of our economy, um, are, is not going to happen precisely because of what you say, Lisa, that he's just not going to have the legislative muscle or I think the, the, the popular support to be able to do it. But I think he can do things around the edges that would increase spending, um, you know, like uh, maybe subsidies for 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 college, uh, maybe some new uh, Green New Deal initiatives. So I don't think uh, if he becomes president, I don't think that he's going to be able to do as much as people fear. But I think he will be able to do enough that spending can be expected to go up. What about the narrative that uh, a Bernie Sanders as a Democrat uh, to go up against Trump is, in fact, bullish for the market because the expectation is that Trump will win handily and will have four more years of pro-business type of, uh, of an administration? 
You know, that seems to be the consensus, I think, now, that uh, that the reason markets are quiet is because they're just not buying um, the, the Bernie candidacy. It'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. I mean, obviously, he's gaining a lot of momentum if he wins in the next couple of primaries, and there starts to be some consensus around him as the nominee, um, and the betting markets start to say maybe he has a chance against Trump, um, then, then maybe the market changes. You know, one of the things to look at, you know, people forget that Bernie Sanders upset Hillary Clinton in 2016 in Michigan. Michigan. And, and it's possible that Bernie Sanders will be more popular in the upper Midwest than anyone currently believes. Uh, and if that is the case, if that appears to be the case, I would expect some sort of reaction from markets. So look out for that. Near, I've heard everyone make an argument about why a potential Bernie Sanders or Senator Warren uh, win would be good or bad for markets. How effective is it to bet on elections? It's a horrible idea, Lisa. Um, you know, <laughs> so I mean, is it even worth it? I mean, because a lot of people are paying attention and expecting more volatility ahead of the November election this year. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think in general that people ought to uh, ought to make their ought to invest based on their predictions of the future because none of us are very particularly good at predicting. Um, you know, that's just I think just rank speculation. Um, but I think it is useful to consider when when there's a narrative and one of the reasons I wrote this column is when there's a narrative that seems to to pervade the market, um, which I think there is a narrative about Sanders wrecking the market. Um, I think it's helpful to perhaps look at the other side of it and say, wait a second, maybe the assumptions that you're making are not going to work out well. Um, and I'm hoping that that will make, you know, that will inject some humility in some of the uh, predictions that we're hearing. Near Kesar, thank you so much for joining us. Near's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also founder of Union Advisors, joining us from the Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. You can find all the opinion stuff, Bloomberg.com slash opinion, as well as OPI and Go on the terminal. Well, with global yields at exceptionally low levels uh, around the world, including some negative yield in places like Germany, Switzerland, Japan, where does a fixed income manager go for yield? I think our next guest can help us out here. Paul Breen, head of fixed income and Newton Investment Management with about $66 billion under management. He's based in London, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. His last name is actually Brain. Yeah, I know. We're, we're, I, was, awesome. I was just going to let it go and just let it go I, I'm there. not going to let that go. Was it, how was it growing up with the last name Brain? Uh, um, challenging. Challenging. Yeah. Yeah, challenging. <laughs> um, so uh, one of those names that people don't forget. Um, right. A lot of people awesome. just can't believe it's Brain. They always call me Brian. Right. Um, yeah. I would embrace the, it. The just pressure, just to, get, the pressure to get good marks in school. I, would think I should have be, been a surgeon. It would have made it so much easier. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, Paul, again, talk to us about kind of – the fixed income markets, you're out there, you're supposed looking for yield. Where do you go? What do you do? How do you frame it up for your portfolio? Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing to say, obviously, yields aren't always returns. So we are, we are using government bonds that uh, perhaps do have very low yields. We, t- we try to steer clear of those negative yielders. I mean, there are alternatives to European yields. You've got, obviously, U.S. yields, Australia, New Zealand, and, and a few. There are some European countries with positive yields. Um, but there's also credit. Uh, yep. There's emerging markets. We have um, strategies that are uh, opportunistic, and we tend to shop around the globe. So we are looking for those markets that uh, still have a positive yield, but also have the potential, perhaps, for yields to go lower. We don't see this environment changing anytime soon. We're not okay. looking for yields to back up uh, in any meaningful way. So this sort of search for yield 
chase for, for returns is, is still going to be with us for a while. Emerging markets was one call heading into this year that that would be an area that would outperform, in particular, local currency emerging markets debt. The belief also hinging on the dollar continuing to weaken, or not continuing, starting to weaken, because we've seen it <laughs> near, uh, near the highs uh, versus some peers. I'm just wondering, we're not seeing that. How much does that change your view on emerging markets? Um, the from a tactical point of view, you've got to you've got to suggest that with things like the virus out there, with the geopolitical risk that's quite high, the dollar has a potential to to stay firm. Uh, that is true, but is that going to change the uh, the interest rate outlook for some of those emerging market countries? Some of the reasons why you buy local currency emerging markets is because they can cut interest rates. It is because, of course, their currencies can uh, appreciate over time. So uh, strategically, we still like local currency markets. In fact, we're taking advantage of weakness to to increase exposure. Um, uh, tactically, we've also got dollars as well. So we have a, a that sort of a barbell approach there. So as you step back and think about, you know, we're it's called 11 years into this economic cycle here in the United States. How do you think about allocating your fixed income portfolio between investment grade, maybe going out, uh, you know, high yield, taking some more risk. You mentioned, we, you just met, talked about in, uh, emerging markets. How do you think about your allocation now? Well, um, with a backdrop of a benign interest rate environment, I'd say an interest rate environment that's not going to change uh, radically one way or the other, uh, you can uh, still chase after some of those opportunities, some of those spreads. So a broad exposure to these markets, uh, risk markets like high yield, I think is, uh, is okay. But uh, you have to be very selective, I think, very, from a company point of view and from a sector point of view. The dispersion within credit is still there. There's a, there is a big difference between the, the ones that are okay and the ones that are not. We're seeing, uh, as we saw last year, companies suffer when they miss earnings um, uh, reports and, uh, and, and, and P&L numbers, et Are there any credit quality problems out there that you're seeing in your portfolio creeping up? Because, again, kind of late in the cycle here, and um, it seems like you might have some credit quality issues. Yeah, that's, that is true. That's certainly keeping us... Uh, not at our maximum exposure. I'd say it's uh, an environment that does support risk on trades, but we're going to be mindful of that uh, possibility that it's a fragile economic environment. Therefore, it's a fragile environment for credit and spreads are pretty tight. So we're, we're, we're balancing some of that exposure by having uh, uh, some, some safe haven assets like US Treasuries um, and uh, other government bonds with our credit exposure. When was the last time that you changed your allocation around? Well, we, the last couple of years have seen us being uh, the, the, uh, fairly dynamic. The strategy we run is called dynamic, and it's lived up to its name. Uh, 2018, we were very um, defensive in terms of interest rate risk and credit risk, just brought down both of those levers. So exposure to, to both of those was, uh, was at record lows. 2019, we uh, went back the other way. So we, we, we scaled up our duration risk, interest rate risk, and also our credit risk by moving back into emerging markets, high yield, and also government bonds at the same time. 2020 is going to be a bit more of a, uh, a carry environment, more an environment where you want to just hang on to those returns. You're not going to get big moves uh, and be very uh, particular about your security selection and your sector selection. What could actually happen that would force you to rethink that? Uh, the two outliers to that central Goldilocks environment are, of course, a recession. Um, uh, and the opposite, of course, is a pick up in inflation. That's just stating the obvious. But if we move back to a rising interest rate environment, as we saw in 2018, then, of course, uh, fixed income markets are going to suffer. If we move to an environment of uh, collapsing uh, economies, you're going to see credit suffer in particular. Um, neither of those scenarios have particularly high weights at the moment. But what we're monitoring to see whether those two can be triggered is uh, it's really China 
the slowdown in economic growth in China before the virus is something that does concern us. Um, that's the you know, global manufacturing base, for instance. Uh, and then the other side of that is just the ramping up of potential fiscal spending leading to inflation, which is a, a longer term story, not one that will hit this year, but something to constantly monitor. Paul Brain, thank you so much for being with us. I got to say, I love your name. I think it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Paul Brain is head of fixed income at Newton Investment Management, which is owned by BNY Mellon and oversees about $66 billion of assets from wide. Normally based in London, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Definitely an interesting time to be investing in fixed income where the income portion has been dropped off for a <laughs> huge portion of markets globally. You know, we have a tension, Paul, on this show where there's a lot going on in Washington, D.C., and it's hard to know when it crosses over into the realm of markets and the broader zeitgeist of yep. the United States beyond the Beltway. Noah Feldman joining us on a story that does percolate on that very much so. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, and, and Professor, I'd love to get your take on what just happened with the Department of Justice coming in, making a recommendation recommendation to revise the sentencing recommendation by prosecutors in the Roger Stone uh, case after uh, President Trump tweeted about it and then the subsequent resignation of those prosecutors. Can you just give us a sense, how big of a deal is this? It's a very big deal when it comes to the independence of the Department of Justice from political influence, especially from the president. So what you have to understand is that, you know, under our Constitution, the Department of Justice isn't an independent agency. But because everyone understands that if you don't have real independence and the people who investigate and prosecute crime, you won't live under the rule of law, there's a strong tradition of the executive branch respecting the judgments of the Department of Justice. And what's bad here is not just that the Department of Justice reversed a recommendation for a strong sentence by its prosecutors, but that they did it after a presidential tweet and in a case of Roger Stone, who lied to Congress to protect the president. So it really looks like the Department of Justice is just knuckling under to Donald Trump, no matter what they, the Department of Justice may claim to the contrary. So clearly some pressure being applied by Attorney General William Barr. Um, how uncommon is it for that to occur, for the Attorney General to insert himself or herself into uh, a DOJ uh, proceeding like this? Well, it's extremely uncommon for it to happen in this way after the fact. So you might imagine in a very, very high-profile case, you would go you know, through the chain, and someone would say, well, let's check with the main justice and maybe the attorney general before we ask for a sentence. But what's extremely rare is that when the department has filed a document with the court saying this is how many years we think this defendant deserves, that the attorney general would then come in after the fact and after a presidential tweet and say, we're changing our mind, we're reversing ourselves, we're retracting that moment and putting in a new one. That undercuts the independence of the prosecutors, and that's why those four prosecutors all step down from this case. It's essentially the closest that a government employee can come to an official protest. It's a way of saying, okay, if you're, you're going to do this over our heads, then we want no part of it. Noah, can you give us a sense in the bigger picture, given your experience uh, clerking on the Supreme Court, given your experience studying history and, and at Harvard, just getting a sense of the potential implications here? I, I mean, you said it was, it's a really big deal, but what does that mean? What it means is that this president is now completely you know, feeling his capacity to do whatever he wants in the aftermath of the failed impeachment. Um, you know, he, he's going to be able to do whatever he wants. 
But it, more importantly, I think, even more importantly than that, in the long run, it undercuts public trust in the FBI and the Department of Justice. And it undercuts the basic idea that we live in a country where you won't be imprisoned or prosecuted or sentenced based on who your friends are or whether you're in with the administration, but rather based on whether you've broken the law and how serious your crimes are. You know, if we lose as a public our faith in that, then that deeply undercuts the capacity of our country to, to go forward as a rule of law country. Losing the faith in it. Uh, but there is a, a pushback that people have to this that is it's always been this way. It's just that President Trump is up front uh, with it and there's less subtlety about some of the the machinations behind the scenes. I mean, we certainly have heard that with respect to some of the travel bans and other things uh, that they have done. Is that the case? I mean, that sort of... I don't think so. I don't think the history bears out that claim. You know, certainly in all of the years that I've been exposed to the Department of Justice and had, you know, close colleagues and friends who work there, there's been an extraordinarily strong tradition of prosecutorial independence. And that's been deeply eroded throughout this administration, but especially now. And you have to add to that the fact that this prosecution was started by Robert Mueller's team. They filed this prosecution. And indeed, several of the prosecutors who were still involved were from Mueller's team. That was supposed to be a special prosecutor who was independent, who wasn't pushed around by the, by the attorney general or by the president. And so that was the whole point of it. And to undercut that really doesn't have a precedent. You know, it basically says special prosecutor isn't actually all that independent. Noah, just in the next 30 seconds, what's the role, if any, oversight-wise that Congress could, uh, uh, I guess, exercise? The most that Congress can do at this stage is call for an investigation. They can ask the attorney general and uh, the the U.S. attorney uh, for for Washington, D.C. to come and testify um, before it and ask them how the decision process went and create greater transparency around this. But there's really no other institutional check available, and the ultimate check, which is impeachment, has already been used, and it didn't work. Noah Feldman, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective. Noah Feldman is a professor at law at Harvard University, also a a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, He also is a witness in the House impeachment investigation and was a clerk to the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice David Souter. So lots of experience uh, with the law within uh, the Beltway. Uh, You can read uh, Noah's work on Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion uh, and on the terminal at OPIN Go. Lots of great work that those folks do, uh, kind of peeling back the onion on a lot of important issues. Tis the season of love and affection and collective guilt and pressure to get something uh, for your significant other. Uh, It is Valentine's Day coming up on Friday. Are you doing anything, Paul? Uh, I'm sure we are. Yes, actually, Eagles concert. Eagles, that's that's very cool. With the family, okay. Well, it is a question, you know, what is sort of the appropriate gift? I will say that... um, my older son even asked me that at one point, and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm already having this conversation, but joining us now, someone probably could have waited a bit better than I did. Chris McCann, President and Chief Executive Officer of 1-800-Flowers.com, Inc., uh, based in Long Island, here with us in our interactive broker studios. Is flowers still the go-to thing? Is that what people go for on Valentine's Day? Well, Valentine's Day is just such a great day. And when you really look at it being the holiday of love, well, as it you is, put it, it, is, it is for you because it counts for a significant portion <laughs> yeah. of your sales, right? So, so yes, flowers are the go-to gift, the, the must-have gift, especially if you must really have. Want, there you if go. You want to express yourself and connect with so many important people, especially your significant other, roses say it all. That's still the go-to... Or an Eagles concert. Yeah, yeah. That's still the go- go-to... No, but far. you still have to have the roses before you go right to now. the Eagles concert. <laughs> okay. Are what about some that? of the new stuff that you like, do no. 
What's some of the new products or something that people are doing today that maybe they didn't do five or 10, 10 years well, ago? Well, one of the things that we do is to make sure that we have accessible price points for everything. So roses are the most do dominant flower and the most popular flower for Valentine's Day. We bring in other things, like for example, even preserved roses. So we have these magnificent roses, they're called, which come in this nice round box, a heart-shaped box, and they, they'll last you for over six months. Okay, can I be a little cynical here? I'm sorry. How did this even get started, this thing where, where people are supposed to go out and buy things for, for, for their significant others on Valentine's Day? Well, it's Day. the Feast of St. Valentine. Right. And it was all about love and romance. But what we love about it, really, is that it's expanded beyond that. So we're now people, and you see the growth in average spend, according to the National Retail Federation, where you're seeing growth because people are buying more to express themselves to family members, co-workers, friends, not just a significant other. Of course, a spouse or a significant other still accounts for about 52% of that spend. But you, we need to do that. We Wait, need to express wait, 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 ourselves. Wait, wait, wait. This is really interesting. Hang on. So 52% is for the significant other. How has that changed over time? How much more have, have sort of friends, co-workers, really people right. are buying co-workers? So, so that stayed flowers about the now? same. Yeah, yes. Flowers and gifts, digital greeting cards if you just want to do something simple and you could do that with some e-cards from 1-800-Flowers, of course. <laughs> uh, but really we we're seeing the growth in the category is from more and more connections. People need to manage relationships on a broad network, not just the romantic relationship that you have. And we are a relationship company. So how do you manage like the surge in volume and demand on a day like Mother's Day or Valentine's Day? Is it, I mean, I would think that'd be a kind of a logistical yeah, struggle. It, it's wildly complex. The good news is we've been doing this for over 40 years now. And we have a bunch of people that have been with us a long time. And then we complement that staff with new people all the time. I'm really, really proud of the team, the way we execute. Especially if you look at our results coming out of this last first half of year, the execution was phenomenal. We grew the top line by 7%. But we, it, we had increased the guidance for the second half of the year on EPS from a growth rate of 8 to 10% to 15 to 17% because of the way we're executing and showing leverage on our operating platform. Paul, have you ever bought flowers for uh, any of your sure, coworkers? Sure. Uh, coworkers, no. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever bought a Valentine's gift for any of your coworkers? No, no. I've actually got a list of uh, names from my kids' schools so that I'm supposed to give out Valentine's to everyone at school ah. with their names on it, and that's a thing that's, that's done, thing. and everybody, okay. and, and my kids always get mad if it's not a sufficient thing. Well, how about chocolate-covered berries for a coworker from Shari's Berries? A company sure, we sounds great, Paul. <laughs> yes, exactly. A company we acquired this past August, so okay. just in time for Valentine's. But I am wondering... Uh, about delivery right now, how challenging is it given that there is a competitive landscape uh, with something that rhymes with Amazon.com. <laughs> that's kind of you know the big the big player here. Yeah. As we look at deliveries, I think the floral network that we have, BlueNet, has always been in the same day delivery business. So we've been out in front of that curve for a long time. But one of the things that we're seeing that's making it even better for us and the retail florists to make those deliveries is the onslaught of new delivery companies, whether that be companies like a DoorDash or a Delive uh, or or some of these other third-party delivery companies. So we have access to those companies as well as our own networks of delivery delivery personnel. So it's actually making it better for us, even though we've been the pioneer in same-day delivery. Well, looking at your company, I was just looking at the financials on the Bloomberg Terminal, and uh, 
you're a lot more than a flower company. I mean, it's this, it's the gift. I mean, so what else besides flowers kind of drives your business? Well, that's what I was going to recommend also for Valentine's Day. Besides the berries, maybe a nice donut bouquet from Harry and David. <laughs> okay. So we've moved into the gourmet food category over the past number of years because that's what our customers tell us they're using to express and connect with the important people in their lives. So Harry and David, Cheryl's Cookies, 1-800-Baskets, Fruit Bouquets, Sherry's Berries, The Popcorn Factory, a couple of others, to the point <laughs> where right. that's more than half of our business More today. Paul, business. Okay. what would you want to get for Valentine's Day? I don't know. There's a lot there. The cherry sounded good. The chocolate thing, Midget. Yeah? Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> would you want to be getting Valentine's gifts from your coworkers? No, not necessarily. I'm going to make this as awkward for you yes. as absolutely <laughs> possible. You're like, oh my God, let me get back to the Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we need to work on this a little bit. <laughs> Interesting. Chris McCann, thanks so much for joining us. Get ready for the big day. Chris McCann, president and CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com, Inc., based in Long Island. And yes, I'm going to make it awkward for you, Paul. Yes. Let's, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Kidding. Carry on. You can so, cite numbers on the, on the exactly. market. Exactly. we got Valentine's Day coming up on Friday, and 1-800-Flowers.com will be there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.